Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, celebrating 20 years of bringing the outdoors to Colorado radio, here's Terry Wickstrom. Good morning. What a beautiful morning out. Oh, it's going to be a little chilly today, and it's going to turn tomorrow. We're looking at snow. Um, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. We're going to cover some open water fishing later in the show. There's still some incredible bites going on that you can take advantage of. We're going to start uh, covering ice fishing. More on that in a second. And we're going to cover both pheasant and waterfall hunting in today's show. So we have a lot to cover, and everything is going really well. Uh, you shotgunners want to pay attention. If you're not out in the field today, you're going to want to get out in the field soon because it is phenomenal out there. We're also starting today um, our, I mentioned ice fishing. It looks like we're going to have early ice. So we're going to be able to get, in fact, I've heard rumors that some of the lakes and the mountains are frozen already. We'll get some updates on that. But we're going to do what we call our Masters of Ice Fishing series. We do this every few years where we get some of the most accomplished ice fishermen in North America, both nationally and regionally. You know, we have a lot of talent right here in Colorado. And every, every, uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to talk a lot of ice fishing with these guys. And, and then we're going to get a lot of local reports because ice fishing has become a really, really great uh, phenomenon as far as the participation here in Colorado. And there's nobody better to uh, kick off our Masters of Ice Fishing with than a very good friend of mine who tremendously changed my ice fishing career. And he's known as Mr. Ice Fishing, and that's Dave Gentz. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Terry. How are you? You know, I'm doing good, and I was going to say, I had this conversation with Al Linder a few weeks ago. I'm going to have it with you. I, I, I can remember, I can remember. I don't know exactly how long it was since the first time we spent with Al, I sat in the water, with you on the ice, which, of course, is on the frozen water, and we declined to tell how long ago that was because it kind of gives away our age. <laughs> we just said we've been around a while. <laughs> yeah. You know, since ice fishing went from the Stone Age to the Space Age, we just got to be part of that. Well, we did. Wasn't it? Well, you especially. And wasn't it great? And I'll tell you what, you and I were talking earlier in the week, and we're going to cover a few <laughs> subjects and give some tips today. But uh, think how much it's changed, Dave, since you rolled out. You really revolutionized it with the portable huts and the fish traps, and then you pushed us into using electronics. But think how much it's changed, and not only those revolutions, we called it the revolution back then, but how much has changed in equipment and the knowledge anglers have nowadays at their fingertips, Dave? Yeah, the, you know, the electronics you know, taught us a lot, you know, especially the underwater cameras now. It's amazing how much how many people go out there and spend time looking with the underwater cameras. I think they actually work better in the wintertime than they do in the summer because, you know, they go straight down and you can spin them around and see what's down there. But, it, but it, it's really taught us a lot of the habits of the fish and where they live and what they do in the winter. Well, yeah, when you and I and a bunch of guys, I remember we used to get together on Thanksgiving weekend normally to kick it off, and we'd find some small lakes up in northern Minnesota that froze before the big ones. And we, you know, we had to, we had to pool some knowledge that we had about those little bodies of water and triangulate our position. I don't think we had anything like a GPS and, and there was certainly no videos we could look at that were going to teach us anything. And the whole sport just changed. I mean, it, it, from there, it just skyrocketed. Yeah. Yeah. Once, once I got that, you know, the Vexilar flasher, you know, and, and 
made it aware that the, the fish aren't here, they're somewhere else. You know, it's kind of funny before that, you know, you'd wait till the sun would go down, they would start biting. You know, they'd say, oh, they'll start biting pretty soon. You know, after we got the, the flasher working, we discovered they weren't there. They showed up at, at, at sundown. So we we started, you know, hunting them up. And, you know, the augers got better, so it's easy to uh, cut holes. You know, when I was when I was young, it was a chisel. You know, my dad used to strap it to my arm so I couldn't lose it. And, and he had to chop holes, and, you know. And now we're using electric augers. Yeah. You know, I, I was amazing how many people are around electric augers. I'm at the, the Shields store here in St. Cloud, Minnesota right now. And I hear you got one out in in uh, Colorado now, too, a Shields store. But it, a lot of people are hanging around the, uh, the electric augers. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. Well, you know, I think another thing, too, Dave, is that uh, once we started having the tools to move around and gather the knowledge of fish— we became extremely successful, and that opened people's eyes and allowed us to take and start teaching them. And if you look at what ice fishing is now, the quality of the anglers, their ability to go out there and catch fish, that's why it's really in the last decade there's such an influx of people into ice fishing, don't you think? Oh, yes, and, and our clothing, too. That's another thing that's got so much better than, you know, than the jeans we were wearing earlier and, you know, and, you know, if you had the good stuff, you had a pair of wool pants, you know, and now we've got all these quality, insulated, breathable, waterproof, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, you, you, I think we're in your portable shelters. Well, you know, if you talk about the portable shelters, and we'll talk about those in a little bit, and then today's clothing, uh, there's no reason to stay indoors or be uncomfortable when you're out on the ice and not be able to move around. Uh, because you are, you're just, uh, you're just, it feels so good. You're layered. It's lightweight. There's space age fabrics. You know, another thing you and I have talked about is in the early days too, uh, there were no clothing that were cut for women and they had to wear these baggy men's clothing and that turned them off. But we're seeing a tremendous amount of women get into ice fishing and the the industries responded, haven't they? Oh yeah. You bet. Uh, you know, clam makes a, a line that are at the women's women's cut to them and, you know, bringing up women, we have, um, you know, the Women Anglers of Minnesota has just been elected into the Minnesota Fishing Hall of Fame. It has grown so much, and there's that there's that many women involved in ice fishing here in 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 Minnesota. So it's it's a, you know, tremendous thing that's going on to get the ladies out on the ice too. The electric auger is another thing. I know my daughters, you know, they really enjoy going out and cutting holes now. Or before they were waiting for some guy to start up the ice the gas auger, you know, now they're out there cutting their own holes. Well, you know, we talked, you know, and I remember the gas. We all, you know, because especially up in the Northland there, we, you know, early ice, you and I would use small hand augers because it was quicker and easier. But once we got enough ice there and we started moving, we'd go to the power augers. But I don't think I ever had one that didn't leak gas and oil in my truck or my car or whatever I was carrying it in or that I had didn't at one time or another have trouble starting it. What type of electric auger are you using? And tell us about it. Well, you know, our... First, our battery technology has got so much better with the, with the lithium batteries. Um, both DeWalt and, and uh, Milwaukee make a wonderful uh, drill. And, you know, I'm using the clam, uh, the, the handles that we got with the clam that uh, almost acts like a power auger. And the 6-inch or 8-inch bit goes on the bottom of it. And, and you put the, the drill on the top. And uh, Vexilar also makes, makes the K-drill which is a, a plastic sliding on it that you chuck right into your, your drill and, and cut holes. And 
know, these things we're talking weighing weighing you know less than ten pounds. Well, you know, so it's lightweight and easy. And when that's one of the things, one of the mantras you always used to preach when we were starting all this was anything, the more that you carried, the less you'd move around and the less successful you'd be. And the heavier it was, the less likely you were to move. And the harder it was to drill a hole, the less likely it was for you to move. And those electric augers have just made moving even easier than it was before, haven't they? Yeah, they certainly have, you know, yeah. And like I said, if it's not easy, you know, if it's easy, you'll do it. If it's not easy, you won't. And I, I'm still using that little uh, saying today. Well, and, and we'll get into a couple of these things before we run out of time. But I got to tell you a story because I want you to expound maybe on the clothing a little bit more. Um, we were filming, and this was well back before the ice team and before the blue suits. And you and I were filming. Uh, we weren't filming. We were fishing up in Valentine, Nebraska, for those big bluegills. And I had on an orange snowmobile suit. And I was. And the locals were getting kind of upset with us because we were catching so many fish, and they weren't using portable shelters and electronics. And you went on later to work with them and win them over, and really showed them how we were doing it. But prior to that, they were a little bit upset with us. And I was walking across the ice, and I took a header. And I'm laying there stretched out in this orange suit. And one of the locals walked by. He goes, you know, he goes, if I was going to be dumb, if I was going to take a fall like that, he goes, I wouldn't be so dumb that I'd wear an orange suit that they could see me all the way across the lake. (laughs) (laughs) That was a cold day. Do you remember that one? Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, certainly. Yeah, that is funny when a person does that, falls down or something, the first thing you jump up and see if anybody's seen you. Yeah. <laughs> Before we get a couple tips from you real quick, let's talk a little bit more about the clothing. What do you, what are some of the advances that you've seen that are out there right now? Well, now the, our, our winter clothing actually floats. Uh, you know, the newest suit for this year is the Rise suit. It's a, uh, you know, a fabric that uh, keeps air inside of it so that it, it you know, actually floats you in the water. So if you did happen to fall through the ice, you would you would float. But even more that that suit you know, this time of the year when the water's really cold or you know, you don't want to fall in right now and, and try to swim because it's way too cold. And here you're you know, it's warm and and it's your your float suit. Yeah, so I know. That's probably the, the biggest thing I've seen in clothing. Well, you know, and if you use common sense, you shouldn't go through, but tragedies can happen. And having those floatable suits now, just another precaution so that we have very few in Colorado tragedies. We do have some people go through, but most people get out. But a few common sense things, floatable suits, some ice picks. And I'll do, I think on, uh, on my Facebook page here in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to post some safety uh tips for people so that they can have an enjoyable time and not worry about it. Before we run out of time, though, I want to talk to you about something that I think has really come along in advance, Dave, and that's presentations, both the types of jigs we have out there and the movement to uh, soft plastics and maybe almost away from live bait at times. Yes, I, you know, I, I definitely carry both with me, live bait and, and plastic, but uh, a good they with plastic and sometimes outfish the live bait. No, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. A lot of the shapes, a lot of manufacturers have taken the time to make some really nice shapes with good actions and some scent on them at times. And if you know, and if you fish them properly, because a lot of times we were 
we were going to uh, we were going to keep uh, maybe we had some waxworms or me- or or mealworms or maggots or spikes on the end of it, but we were keeping some action on that jig anyway. Uh, so the plastics, a lot of times, you can give them almost that same action. Yes, and they you know they you know they create a swimming action in the water. Uh, you know, our rods have got you know the ability of giving that action on a, on a good quality rod. Uh, you know, it just works so much better as a graphite. Now, you know, we've all made that step in the in the summertime to upgrade our rods to a good quality graphite, and the ice fishermen are coming behind right now and and doing the same thing as upgrading their rods to good quality graphites. What are a few of the maybe tips as far as jigs you like to use that might be effective out here, and some of the plastics you like? Well, probably my my favorite jig is the drop kick. Of course, it's one that I designed. You know, color-wise, I really like a, a jig that glows red. Uh, even in the daytime hours, it's dark down there where, you're, where we're fishing, if, if we're fishing at any depth. So, it, you know, you, in the daytime, the sunlight makes this jig, jig glow. So, you know, we used to use dark jigs on, on dark days. Now we use glow jigs on dark days. Uh, <clears throat> you know, the plastics, I really like the, uh, the one, some of the Mackie plastics, the, the Jamie is probably my favorite one if you're using the swimming type bait. And then you have the poly that if you're fishing up close to the bottom and imitating the, the bloodworms that come out of the out of the bottom. So it's kind of two different presentations. If you're in the weeds, a lot of times you're you're imitating a bug that's swimming and if you're fishing in deeper water, you're fishing on something that comes up out of the mud. I have really fallen in love with bloodworm imitations. Now, I've been using some of the Berkeley Gulp that are not the actual bloodworm, but they have a couple others, a small extruded red nightcrawler and then their Eurolarva by leaving segments together. And bloodworms are really an overlooked uh, an overlooked, whether it's live bait or an artificial or an overlooked, because almost every fish at one time or another is going to eat bloodworms, aren't they? Yes, they are. You know, they're thick on the bottom of the lake, and in that golden hour in the evening when the sun starts going down, they rise up out of the bottom and, and they eat the, the phytoplankton, the stuff the sun has made during the daytime. That's how they survive. And, and so when they rise up out of the bottom, the fish start feeding on them. You know, and that's why we have that big bite in the evening when the sun starts going down because the, the, the bloodworms and the zooplankton start raising up off the, off the bottom. Now, one jig that you thought would be very effective out here was the caviar jig. Yes. It's, you know, it looks like a, uh, uh, an egg shape on the top, and it's just on the size of a, of a, 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 a pea, I guess, is the size of it. And in putting the Jamie XL on it, it looks like a, 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 a Buck creature swimming in the in the water, and it, I've had my best success with trout, and that's what you fish for a lot out in out in Colorado are the trout species. I could I could see that caviar jig tipped with even a a, a bloodworm imitation or live bait being extremely effective. A couple other things I want to touch on real quick, and I know we've got another segment to get to, but we're going to have plenty of time to cover that um, for for some other people. So I got my I got a. I got uh, Walt there. Walt, hang on. We'll get to you. Um, one is plastics. We don't switch plastics enough. You and I talked about, you know, when live bait was worn out, we'd switch it. And maybe it isn't that the plastic doesn't have scent in it anymore, but it doesn't make the same presentation, yet we still keep using it. Yes, it's it's amazing how we'll do that. You will, you know, it gets torn up because you caught a fish on it or or 
more than likely you've caught a fish on is what happened. And one arm's a little bit it's torn, and, and we'll rehook that thing, and we'll put it in the water, and it's going around in a circle, and we'll re-rehook it. And, you know, we wouldn't do that with live bait. You throw it away and put a new one on. I, you know, I learned that from a television guy out of out of Chicago that was fishing in my boat. At the end of the day, he had 15 pieces of plastic laying on the floor that all looked good, but they had a little tear in them or something. And, you know, I was fishing minnows, and every time my minnow was a little bit, wasn't swimming quite right, I was in putting a new minnow on. And, you know, it all went click. You know, you've got to do the same thing when you're using plastic. Last thing before I let you go, Dave, and you and I could talk for an hour on ice fishing, is what's new in the shelter world? I heard you're making shelters now that you can actually camp in. Yes, you know, you know, here in Minnesota, there's a lot of people buy a, a house, the drop-down fish house, the wheels pick up and it sits down, and it's you know, they're campers is what they are. Now we make we make insulated uh, pop-up fish houses that are, you know, we put a, we even got floors that you can put in them. And set them up out on the ice, and you can actually, you know, camp in them. You got, you know, your buddy heaters that have a low oxygen cutoff in them, so that you don't have to worry about suffocating in there and and being insulated. You know, so you know, winter camping. I mean, people will do it, but now you can actually be comfortable. All right, Dave. We got so much great information. You and I need to get back on the ice again very soon, sometime, my friend. Okay, Terry. It's always you know fun talking with you and reminiscing about some of the old days, but we got to have some current experiences. We do. We haven't been on the ice forever together, my friend, and you certainly were a huge influence both in the ice fishing world and to me personally. Thank you so much for joining us today. Okay. Yeah, thank, thank, thanks for having me, Terry. You bet. That's Mr. Ice Fishing, Dave Gentz. Uh, he is uh, just tremendous. What he helped do, we called it the revolution, and we'll be talking more about that over the next few weeks as we do our Masters of Ice Fishing series. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sun Power Sports, Colorado's largest ATV and motorcycle dealer. We're going to go right to the phones. Waiting, I hope patiently, is Walt Prue. Good morning, Walt. Good morning, Terry. Can you hear me all right? I can hear you great. Sorry about getting to you, but we're going to give you plenty of time. It's, <laughs> it's hard for me to get off the phone when we have a legend like Dave Gantz on. So. Well, you know, it was interesting listening to a couple of Minnesota boys talking ice fishing. That's that's like second probably only to hockey with you all. So. Yeah, that's pretty close. It might be first. <laughs> and, you know, ice fishing in Colorado, the last time I saw a survey, I believe from Parks and Wildlife, that there are 250,000 licensed anglers in Colorado that at least ice fish occasionally. Yeah. So, so it's really caught on here, too. But we're going to change things up because you want to talk to us about uh, shooting and uh, a facility that's gone in over on the West Slope by Palisade, I believe. Tell us, what's the name of the facility and kind of tell us what it's about. Yeah, so it's the Cameo Shooting and Education Complex. It's it's roughly 13 miles from the the airport there at Grand Junction, and it's just just east on Interstate 70 from the town of Palisade at uh, Exit 46. Uh, and the Cameo Shooting and Education Complex covers 2,000 acres of pristine high desert country. In fact, I'm looking out the door of my office window right now, and I'm actually looking at 20 bighorn sheep crossing the hillside. It's a wonderful thing. So, uh, so the facility is built on the premise that that there's a desire and a need to change the 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 generational shift away from hunting, fishing, recreational shooting, the out of doors, uh, you know, a general understanding of of how the our outdoors world works, uh, and that's 
that sort of disappeared over the last several years. And, and this was built on the idea that it would be not just a recreational uh, and competitive shooting sports venue, but also would offer many educational opportunities, including our, our hunter education, hosting 4-H events, uh, ecology classrooms, out of doors, that sort of thing. It's an all-encompassing shooting and education complex. Well, you know, um, you're really hitting all my hot buttons because (laughs) anybody who's listened to these shows or followed my TV or my writings and my articles and columns knows that I'm virtually evangelistic about getting people outdoors because I think there's a value system that comes with it. And I also think that there's a certain uh, cultural element that you can create friendships and bonds and memories unparalleled in any other activity. And the two things that prevent people from getting more involved in the outdoors, number one is a little bit of knowledge and how to get started and what to do. But the real roadblock is always access to facilities where they can do it. Because as you and I talked earlier, and as you go through time we've gone on, you know, as we've built out and we've urbanized more areas, we've developed more areas, and as we're getting more multi-use areas, trails used for different things, shooting, for instance, is very difficult at times to find a safe, good place to shoot where you're comfortable, and we're seeing more and more the need for these types of ranges, and then having a facility combined with it where you can have classes on fly fishing or on fly tying or on maybe 101 duck hunting or whatever you want, whatever you want to have is so fantastic. How does something like this get funded? Well, that's a great question, and a lot of people come in here sort of aggravated, thinking that maybe their tax dollars are paying for this, and nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing nothing to do with CPW, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, is is taxpayer-funded. It's all... It's all fee revenue generated, and then also for this facility, it's a combination of uh, Pittman-Robertson grant money, which is you know the federal excise tax on arms and ammunition, uh, as well as a number of other grants and donations. Uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation has been a tremendous benefactor for us, and we're developing a, a great relationship with them. Uh, a lot of the, the local oil and gas producers here and, and other businesses have also stepped up and, and made both uh, – attributed as well as anonymous donations to us and also the the original purchase of the property was a collaborative effort between the town of Palisade and Colorado Parks and Wildlife where the town of Palisade actually leveraged a DOLA grant uh, to to actually purchase the property and then lease it back to Colorado Parks and Wildlife so this this has truly been a, a you know a labor of love for a number of different organizations and, and civil groups and and municipalities to put this together. Now, it's a public-use facility with some fees, of course, but it's not anything where you need a membership or you have to live in a certain area to belong, right? No, that's correct. We have a we have a pretty large a la carte type fee structure where a person could come in and just, just pay for a day pass to go shoot on the, the rifle, pistol, and archery ranges here on the public-use facility. Uh, and then we encourage both youth, which are three bucks for a day pass, and then also returns. So multi-day passes, annual passes, family passes, corporate passes, any of the any of the above. Uh, the the more you play, the less you pay, kind of thing. So we encourage repeat visitors. Now, before we run out of time, why don't you kind of bring people up to speed? I, it's um, it's it actually in development. You've got certain stages that are open now. Tell us what's open now and quickly what's coming in the future. Okay. 
So we've got a three-phase plan here, and we've just completed Phase 1A. We broke that down into two pieces. Phase 1A is a 25-acre action shooting sports pavilion that includes seven public access bays, four of which are pistol bays, two 100-yard rifle bays, one 200-yard rifle bay, all with with state-of-the-art benches, Wi-Fi connectivity, and so forth, and also a, a significant archery practice range with a covered shooting position. Then there are 13 additional bays that are our events and training facility where we'll hold IDPA, USPSA, three-gun law enforcement training, introduction to firearm safety trainings, a number of different uh, applications in the events facility. That's not typically open to the public uh, uh, other than during an event. Then Phase 1B, which should be up and running by next spring, will include two complete sporting clays courses, one terrain-based in a beautiful picturesque valley, the other an executive clays course, uh, more densely compact and, and quicker to shoot through. Then Phase 2 is going to include a large visitor center. Uh, picture the inside of a Cabela's or a Bass Pro or something, if you will, a Mountain Lodge-type-themed place with retail space, uh, educational space, four classrooms, two indoor shooting ranges, and a banquet facility. Phase 3 will include a county spec road up onto an area that we call the bench, which is a, a gigantic natural area, part of which we will develop into a 1,000-yard bench rest uh, facility that that will have the electronic target backers out at a thousand. I call it a thousand, but it'll actually go out to fifteen hundred as well. So it, it's going to be a, a true shooter's Disneyland here, and and the number of events that we'll host here are are countless. Now we got to let you go way way over time. Uh, if people want more information, is there somewhere on the web they can go? Yeah, our, our Colorado Parks and Wildlife website. If if you go on there and just search for the the Cameo Shooting and Education Complex, it'll pop up a web page. And also, we're on Facebook. If you just Google Cameo Shooting and Education Complex, it'll pop right up. All right. And is this potentially a model for other types? Could there be funding for other facilities? Yeah, almost certainly. In fact, uh, CPW is looking at developing other, although not as extensive. They are looking at developing some other similar shooting ranges around the state modeled after this one on a smaller scale. All right. Well, we have to run, but thank you so much. Sounds like a tremendous facility. I have to get over there and visit it. Love to have you out. Let us know when you're coming. All right. Thank you, my friend. Take care. You bet. Walt uh, Proof from Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Great facility. We're going to take time out. We come back. Uh, Josh Melby's going to join us, and we're going to spend some time because I think Josh is going to tell us that there's some incredible bird hunting going out in eastern Colorado right now. All that and more on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. We're going right back to the phones where Josh Melby is going to join us from the Yuma Ray area, and we're going to talk some upland game. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Oh, great to have you on. Now, you you said you were going to be out in the field checking hunters. Uh, today's uh, opening weekend, right? How's it going? Uh, really good. So we've been out since uh, first light, and uh, we've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of hunters in the field and... Uh, Pretty happy to report that most of the hunters we've talked to have uh, had the chance to harvest at least a bird, and uh, everybody we've talked to has at least seen birds and had some opportunity. That's great. You know, I had uh, Ed Gorman on a while ago, last week, in fact, and we talked, and Ed gives me his predictions, but when you get out in the field and you're talking to the hunters and the action is starting, that's really the proof in the pudding. Of course, Yuma is probably one of our best counties for upland game, don't you think? 
Uh, yeah. So the the Yuma County, Philip Sedgwick County, um, that corridor right through there is always pretty consistent for birds and uh, has had good numbers the last few years. Well, you know, we went through maybe about an 11-year up-and-down roller coaster where we had some banner years and we had some down years because of incredibly bad weather. And then we had some really, really prime years. I think 2016 was off the charts. 17 was okay. It was good. The weather wasn't quite as good. Ed said today that some areas came through as good as some of our banner years and some areas because of hail or other things. So are you seeing that too? Or maybe if you're not seeing birds, there's birds around. You just have to move a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're seeing some mixed stuff and, uh, like I said, most people, um, you know, hunt in the walk-in areas, everybody's seen birds. Um, and it's varied from, you know, half a dozen birds to, um, we've watched some of the corners where they've put out 30 to 50 birds out of a corner. So, um, you know, you just have to move around, especially opening weekend guys are pushing birds around a lot. So even though it's been hunted, um, you know, the group right across the road might've just pushed all the birds right back into there. So, um, guys are having a lot of luck, um. You know, before we go on, let's talk a little bit more about the walk ac- walk-in access, and then with that, the Corners for Conservation, because that's been an incredible program. But first of all, um, I know you're a big stickler about, and we all should be, we all are, about etiquette, about the way you act out there. Walk-in access in Colorado gives hunters a chance to go to prearranged plots of land where they don't have to stop and ask the landowner permission. It's been prearranged. He's being compensated for giving use of his land, and they're posted properly. That's an incredible resource in Colorado, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's really a win-win for the landowners and the hunters. So the the landowners don't have to worry about, you know, um, keeping track of who they've given permission to and stuff. Um, and... The, the hunters, I mean, there's a huge resource available for them, but, you know, it's, I always encourage hunters. We, we run into a few issues with those and, uh, a lot of it this time of year revolves around harvesting. Um, there's still a little bit of corn up in the fields. So guys are, uh, scrambling to get that corn out, um, before the weather changes and they, they can't get it out. So, um, just remind hunters that, uh, you know, be really courteous of those landowners and, especially when you're finding a place to park, um, get off the road. Um, that's probably one of the biggest complaints I hear is, you know, guys parking right in the middle of the road. And when you've got that combine with the header on it, they, they can't get by. Um, and they're, they're on a time schedule. And, um, but the other side of that is if you do get off the road, um, park in short grass, uh, don't park in that tall grass. Cause, uh, I, seen several cases where people have come back to a vehicle on fire um, with uh, that exhaust starting the grass up. Yeah, well, you got to be, there's so many things to be careful of. Uh, one of the, and I want to talk more about etiquette when you do have to, when you do, should be asking landowners and how you should act too. One thing is if you mentioned, if there's any harvest going on at all, a lot of times the lands don't get posted till that's harvested. But if there is a harvest going on, the number one priority has to be safety. So don't hunt an area where you might be endangering a farmer who's trying to get his harvest out. I mean, that'll be bad for the program. It's bad for you. It's bad for everybody. But one of the things that's been added to the program over the last, I think, three years that's been a tremendous success. You know, we've seen a reduction in CRP in Colorado, which is conservation land, which the pheasants 
provide habitat. But the program, a joint program between Parks and Wildlife and a number of agencies, Pheasants Forever, started going to those corners where the pivots, you know, where the people go over an airplane, they see those round pivots that are green where they water, but there's those corners that don't get watered. Well, that's marginal farmland because it doesn't get irrigated, but that made great pheasant habitat. And now we've included a lot of those in the walk-in access. Is that right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, been a really uh, successful program. So uh, we've been expanding it the last three years. So in Yuma County this year, um, partnered with our local Pheasants Forever chapter and uh, um, helped the chapter. And we planted, uh, I think, 53 um, irrigated corners um, in the county this spring. And uh, all those are enrolled for walk-in hunting. And uh, we've made it through uh, a pretty good portion of those uh, this morning. And uh, they're getting lots of use, but um, lots and lots of birds. And uh, every hunter we've talked to has been really happy and, and really excited uh, to have the opportunity to go hunt them. And uh, they're going to continue to be good throughout the season. Oh, those um, corners, you know, they're smaller plots than maybe other walk-in access plots. But you really strive to make sure there's ideal habitat in them, don't you? Yeah, so... Um, Ed Gorman was a big proponent in coming up with a mix for those, um, but it's it's a really good mix where it's got a lot of your tall switchgrass, warm season grasses, so you're going to get that waste to chest high grass, um, and it's got a lot of your flowering plants in there, which are really key to get the, the pheasant production up. So um, with them being right beside irrigated corn, um, it's pretty much the ideal situation for pheasants and uh as a lot of the hunters have been seeing, it, they'll produce a lot of birds. And it's uh, it reminds you of kind of the stuff you'd see in South Dakota with some of the bird numbers that we're seeing pushing out of some of these. Well, it's fantastic. Hey, you know, I want to uh, take a step onto that, too. You know, a lot of people, you know, especially, you know, big game hunters want to be out. Of course, you get a short season. A lot of waterfall hunters try to get out opening weekend. But, you know, a lot of people for upland game, pheasants and quail, they want to get out that opening weekend before the birds get pushed around a little bit. But because there's still standing corn out there and because there's a number of birds there are and the ground cover is going to change and they're going to group up. I would think this is going to be a hunting season. that's going to be productive well into the season. Yeah. Uh, there'll be, there'll be opportunities for, for birds clear into January. Um, I always, when I'm talking to hunters, it's your, your tactics change because opening weekend to get a lot of those young of the year that are going to hold for you and get up at your feet or get up behind you. Um, by December, January, they get a little more educated and, uh, you know, I encourage hunters to hunt them more like you would deer. So, you know, don't slam that door, be quiet, um, and use, use blockers if you can. And, uh, you know, try to, to pick where those birds are and actually sneak up on them. Um, because it's amazing how well they hear. And, uh, I'll see a lot of guys slam the door and the birds are going out the other end of the field already. Um, so, you know, the opportunities there, you just have to change your tactics a little bit and, uh, um, you can have some pretty good success. Well, you know, and it's not a bad idea to drive the roads, uh, look for signs of birds in an area you're going to hunt, or maybe after you're done for a day, an area you may want to hunt next time, see if there's birds in it. It also gives you a layout of the fields, especially with the corners and how the fields lay out, doesn't it? Yep, and I uh, I always tell hunters, uh, we put out the nice late-season walk-in maps, that uh, really good map, and uh, 
I, my personal one, I drive around and I have all kinds of notes on there of, you know, fields or where I've seen birds or, you know, that field that they haven't cut the corn on. I'll make a note that, you know, come back in two weeks. A good place to stop and and take a look. Last comment from you. There's still a lot of private land out there that's very huntable that isn't in walk-in access. Um, People need to be very aware and make sure they get permission and treat those landowners right if they want to try to hunt that, don't they? Yes. Unfortunately, that's uh, one of my most common violations is uh, trespass tickets. And uh, in in Colorado, um, any private land, um, unless it's posted in walk-in or as a state wildlife area, um, you have to get permission whether it's posted or not. And uh, most of the trespass tickets I've written, the landowners told me after it that if they'd have stopped and knocked on the door, I'd have given them a place to hunt. But, um, you know, it, it's just really disrespectful to the landowner if if you're out there and, and not asking and walking through their stuff. So. I think the message we want to leave pe- uh, people with, Josh, though, is that uh, it looks like it's there's a chance to have a very successful pheasant season. There's no reason to have to take long trips, get out in eastern Colorado, and you're probably going to get some birds. Yeah, I, I always hear a lot of people tell me Colorado doesn't have pheasants, but uh, that, that hadn't been the case here for a few years. We've got good pheasants and uh there's there's plenty of opportunity, and I'll always throw in, uh, take a kid out with you. So we need more kids in the field, and uh, it's a great opportunity to get them out and get a good experience. And those walk-in access uh, properties are perfect for getting a kid out hunting. Yep, So and especially the corners properties are small. You don't have to walk a mile, and uh, there's a pretty good chance that they're going to at least see some birds. All right, Josh, thanks for that update, and keep us current on what's going on, because it looks like it's going to be even maybe a better season than we thought. Yep. So, Thank you, sir. Thank you. That, that's Josh Melby from Colorado Parks and Wildlife. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sun Power Sports, Colorado's largest ATV and motorcycle dealer. If you've been listening to the show today, you heard that we're starting our Masters of Ice Fishing series. We do a series like this almost every year, and we're going to bring you both locally and nationally some of the best ice fishermen in um, in the world, actually. And uh, in fact, some of them have actually been world champions. We're going to bring you guys. We had Dave Gentz on the, this morning. If you missed that, the podcast will be up this afternoon. Mr. Ice Fishing. In fact, I cut my teeth fishing with Dave in the early days developing products. And uh, what we did for the sport was fantastic. Uh, we're going to have uh, Steve Panaz, you know, from Lake Commandos, also a, a championship ice fisherman who's fished in world champion competition. We'll have Bro Brian Bro Brosdahl. He's that big red-headed guy. Every time you open a fishing periodical, you'll see him. Greg Clajo, one of the pioneers of modern-day ice fishing and somebody who I've spent hours and hours on the water and the ice with and an incredible angler and knowledgeable. And then our own local guys like uh, Nate and Will and Bernie and... Uh, Brad Peterson and Austin Parr. We'll keep you up to date on what the tactics and techniques to use here and the conditions of the ice. So if you want to know who's coming up and what we're going to have on, 
you got to follow us on Facebook because what we'll be doing is like we did this week. We'll say you have to tune in because Dave Gens is joining. You have to tune in because Steve Panaz is going to be on Talking Ice Fishing. So we'll highlight those. You should always follow us on Facebook. Facebook is Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook. But there's other reasons to follow us too. Number one, we're going to have a trivia contest coming up pretty soon. And we're going to give away close to $100 worth of Honey Smoke Fish Company's smoked salmon. What a great holiday gift that would be. I mean, to have it for hors d'oeuvres or, or for an ingredient to make holiday dishes. When people come over, you need a quick appetizer. Uh, but to win that, you're going to have to answer a trivia question that we'll ask on the air. The answer to that trivia question will be posted in Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on our 20 years of Terry Wickstrom Outdoors trivia, tidbits of trivia. Karen posts those once in a while. So you should follow us and like us on Facebook so you see those. So when we ask the question, you have a chance to win that Honey Smoked Fish Company smoked salmon. In addition on our Facebook page, Karen puts up the Parks and Wildlife Fishing Report every week. And by the way, we're working with them to try to get that out earlier in the week like it used to come out. We're hoping we can get that accomplished. She'll also post any recent additions to our YouTube channel, channel The Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom. In fact, you should go to that channel anyway. About half the programs, and there's about 100 of them up there, The Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom, were filmed within a day of Denver. So a lot of some of them are faraway spots like Costa Rica and Alaska, but a lot of them are filmed right around here. A lot of the ice fishing especially, which we're coming into. Also, my, my column for the Denver Post. Whenever, whenever, we, uh, whenever my column comes out weekly, and it's out every week, uh, we put a link on the uh, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors Facebook page to my Denver Post column, and it's the very best way to follow my column because that's the most complete, you know, it's in the paper, it's in the app, but... A lot of times there's links to a lot of information that don't get always carried through to every way it's presented. So the link that goes on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook always gives you a chance to see all the links to audio and video or information that we've associated with that column. So there's lots of reasons. You need to follow us on Facebook, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. You'll know who's coming up for our Masters of Ice Fishing show, which you really want to pay attention to. You'll have a chance to win trivia, and then you'll get to look at the column and any of our recent additions to our YouTube channel. We're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, Will from... Uh, Tightline Outdoors will join us, and we're going to talk some fishing right here on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan.